chapter 22. As we find our way there, just a reminder, Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we'll be studying in John's Gospel tonight, 6 o'clock. Each of you are invited. Revelation chapter 22, verse 6. And then he, that is the angel, said to me, that is the Apostle John, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly, Jesus said. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren the prophets and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. And he who is unjust, let him, remain, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me, Jesus says, to give to everyone according to his works. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outsider dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. And I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root of the offspring and the offspring of David and uh, the bright and morning star. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water uh, of life freely. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. And he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen, John says, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the time that we have enjoyed in the study of um, this book of Revelation, what it has accomplished within our lives by your Holy Spirit. And we pray that this morning, by your Holy Spirit, you would put the finishing touches upon it and then upon what you want it to accomplish and do in each one of our lives individually as well. We pray and ask for this work of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So as we come to the end of this study, we remember all the way at the beginning in chapter 1, God promised to bless those who read 
and those who heard and those who obeyed this revelation. And I can't speak for everyone else, but I certainly have been blessed uh, in going through this, and I trust that you have been as well. I like books and I like stories that have happy endings, where the good guys win and the bad guys lose. When I was uh, uh, early in elementary school, I read every single book in the public library on the Texas Rangers and on every single Congressional Medal of Honor winner and every single person like that that I could find within the library. And there's something about those kind of stories where the good guys win and the bad guys lose and righteousness and justice prevails in the end. When we read a book or we are watching a movie, most often the tension and, uh, is, uh, and our, our attention is kept by uh, the tension that is occurring there uh, in the book or the movie as we're wondering whether evil is going to win or whether good is going to win in the end. And I ask myself, why do we feel that tension? Why uh, do we feel that sense of relief when uh, evil is not only crushed but publicly crushed uh, as an example to everyone and then good prevails? And why do we long for this except that somehow we know we've been created for something better uh, than the life that we have and the life that we find ourselves uh, in the middle of. And that somehow I think there's within each of us, there remains that witness uh, that we were created for Eden and there is some connection to that garden uh, beyond the fall of Adam and Eve that is inside of each and every one of us. And here in the Revelation we have the ultimate in happy endings because it is uh, the ending in which God wins. And here we have the answer to 2,000 years of prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth even as it is in heaven, not only by Christians in the United States of America, but Christians as we've seen all around the world. And the realization that the seal and the trumpet and the bold judgments of the tribulation period will not be judgments purely for judgment's sake, but that they will be required, uh, be necessary in order for the kingdoms of this world to become the kingdoms of our Lord and of our Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. Then that is precisely what is going to happen one day. This closing section of the Revelation puts our focus upon four principal things. Number one, there's a series of encouragements. Two, there's a series of uh, exhortations or warnings. And then Jesus' repeated reminder of His return. And then the bride's uh, enthusiastic response to uh, His promise to return. First, the encouragements in verse 6 the angel declared to John that the words of this revelation are faithful and true. That is, that every detail that we have read in the revelation uh, from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 2, all of it is going to come to pass and all of it is going to come to pass exactly as it has been uh, described. 
And so no Christian should ever end the book of Revelation, and the Holy Spirit wants to make sure that it's so. Come to the end of the book of Revelation and think to ourselves, that's too good to be true. That's uh, too impossible to be true, or too improbable uh, to be true. And instead we're to understand that uh, just as God gave prophecies to the Old Testament prophets, this prophecy is just simply God giving us human history in advance, and that God will be completely faithful to keep every promise that He's given us in this book. Again, we're told that the events of the Revelation must shortly take place. And as we noticed in the very beginning of our study of the Revelation, that word shortly means, it's the Hebrew word, or Greek word, takos, and we get our English word tachometer from it. And so the idea is not so much that the revelation or these events are going to uh, uh, occur suddenly in human history, but rather once they do occur, they will move very, very rapidly. And uh, once it starts, it's going to redline very quickly. The second thing we're told is an encouragement in verse 16 is that this revelation comes to us from Jesus Himself. So it's as trustworthy as Jesus is, as trustworthy as every word uh, that Jesus has ever spoken. It is interesting, and you can say it about the entire Bible, where Jesus declared of Himself, heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my word shall never pass away. And while it is true of the entirety of the Bible, He spoke that very specifically in the Olivet Discourse, related to the events that we're looking at here uh, in the Revelation. You notice he describes himself, and uh, it's important to realize he doesn't just describe himself to draw attention to himself. He's wanting to communicate something to us. He describes himself as the root and the offspring of David, and he's referencing Isaiah there. As the root of David... He created David, King David. He brought David, King David, into existence. As the offspring of David, he was born a descendant of David, brought into the human history through the lineage of King David. And so he is both the source and the son of David. And he's emphasizing his deity and his humanity here. And when he declares himself to be the bright and the morning star, the bright and morning star is the dawning star. It's the star that appears in the sky when the night is almost uh, over. And so it announces that dawn is about to arrive. And so communicating that Jesus' uh, return, his soon return, will be, bring an end to the dark. All of the darkness that's been introduced into human history by virtue of the fall of Adam and Eve in that Garden of Eden. And it's going to, his return is going to bring the beginning of a new day and a new uh, day in human history. He tells us further as an encouragement in verse 17 that this closing passage contains here, as we see it, a final call to the unsaved, to the non-Christian who has maybe studied thus far with us in the study of the book of Revelation or reading the book of Revelation 
uh, on their own and they have uh, finished all of these things that are going uh, to come to pass in uh, this record, this history in advance related to the revelation. And there is this call on them, a final call here, to come to Christ and to come to salvation. Let him who thirsts come, and whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. And we've seen this demonstrated by God through the entire revelation. So often as Christians, we think of the revelation as that's the book where God pulls the hammer out and he just wipes everybody out. That all it is is judgment. But we've seen from the beginning to the end that while he must judge the unrighteousness, there is that continual effort on his part to draw the lost into salvation that is found in his Son. And so he cries out, uh, Jesus does here, at the end of the book to the lost, it's not too late, and to come to him. One day it will be too late, and, uh, but today is not that day. Today is the day of salvation, and the Holy Spirit here calls upon uh, any of us who might not be Christians yet uh, and are unsaved to give our life to Christ, to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and become His disciple and become His follower this morning. The fourth encouragement is in verse 21 where the Apostle John commends us as Christians to the grace of God as we are awaiting the fulfillment uh, of these events. He says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. In other words, this grace, uh, His grace, uh, Jesus is going to deliver us from wherever we are today. And only you know where you are today and what your life is like today and what's involved in your life today and what are the seemingly obstacles uh, in your life and and, uh, as I recognize them in my own life uh, as well. And, uh, and all of those things, uh, Jesus is in His grace going to deliver us from our current place into this eternal glory. And of course, we can't help but think of John Newton's uh, amazing grace in this regard. This grace that kept me safe thus far. And so it has. We have that witness in our lives. And then uh, that gives us the confidence then, and grace will lead me home. Notice next the warnings. In verse 10, the angel's exhortation to the Apostle John and to us, uh, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. And so note that, mark it, underline it, shout it from the mountaintops that the book of Revelation is not a sealed book. It is a revelation. Why would God begin the revelation, the book of Revelation, with the two words, the revelation, if it's a sealed book, if it's a hidden book, if it cannot be uh, understood? And the overwhelming majority of Christians view the book of Revelation in exactly that way and are denied the blessings of knowing it and understanding it uh, as uh, a result. And so God knowing that many Christians would stir, uh, steer away from the book, 
and, and declare it to be closed, impossible to understand. It's best to be left uh, ignored. And, and here uh, the Lord rebukes that view concerning this book. You notice in verse 11 that we're told that we also need to be careful how we leave our study of the Revelation concerning those who are unjust and those who are wicked. In, in the early part of verse 11, the unsaved, he, uh, the Holy Spirit declares that if a person is unmoved by the prophecies, the judgment and the grace that is demonstrated in this book, by, and if these warnings and realities won't bring them to repentance, then no other message will work either. And then concerning the righteous and the holy, the Christian, in the latter part of the verse, uh, we should leave the book of Revelation with a greater commitment to righteousness and a greater commitment to holiness than when we began the book or the book has not been allowed to do its full work within our lives. He warns additionally in verse 15, those who reject God instead of uh, and, and choose instead to live a life of sin that they will not enter into heaven. And so he gives a list of this kind of person when he talks about dogs. He's not talking about our little toy poodles that we have, or our little uh, whatever they are. Uh, so dogs refers to evil people in the Bible. It refers to false teachers. And, and so here, you, you look at a dog, you look at human beings as, we, as somebody would choose to live on an animal level, the level of a dog, uh, just being driven completely by animal and physical uh, instincts. And so again, he's driving home the point in verse 15 that the practice of sin is not going to be allowed in heaven, and uh, sin again has ruined the earth, but... God will not allow it uh, to ruin heaven. And then there is also the warning in verses 18 and 19 not to add to or take away from the words of this book of Revelation. So a very, very strong warning uh, to the copyists of the Bible uh, in ancient times where they would write and nobody was to edit, not anything related to the Bible, but uh, not the Revelation either. It certainly speaks as well to every student of the book of Revelation, to all teachers of the book of Revelation all through the ages. And it's intended to put a fear of God in us uh, related to fiddling around in our, in our, with our own ideas with the book of Revelation. He gives the penalty here in verse 18 for adding to this revelation God says that He will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. All of the seal judgments, all of the trumpet judgments, all of the bowl judgments. The penalty for taking away from the book of Revelation, much less uh, spiritualizing the entire book uh, and making it say whatever we want to say uh, or explaining away its clear meaning, that God will take away His part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. So God knows how He wants to reveal His Son 
And he has done it in the revelation, and he doesn't want our help on either end of the spectrum of either adding to it or taking away from it in any age. Leave it alone uh, is uh, the final word uh, related to it. The, Bi- the book of Revelation is to be read, it's to be uh, obeyed, it is not to be uh, tampered with. Perhaps you uh, have noticed in the course of this uh, study in the Revelation where I'm teaching certain sections of it and uh, the meaning of that passage isn't made clear either by its context or uh, something uh, taught in the New Testament or something that is revealed about it related to uh, the Old Testament, the qualifying uh, statements that I would use in addressing them, saying perhaps or uh, I'm inclined to think, or it appears, or this might be uh, the case. And uh, all the time being quietly aware that we were coming to this warning at the end uh, of the book. Now someone might read this and say, is this saying that I uh, could lose my salvation if I take away from the book of Revelation? And I would say to you, what are you trying to do? You're trying to get me to add or to take away from the book of Revelation? I don't understand everything about the warning. But what I do understand is it has a very sobering effect upon me not to add to it, not to take away from it. And so as long as we as Christians don't take away from it and and we continue on in our Christian life, uh, then we have... Uh, nothing to be worried about uh, at all. And then the dominant theme of this closing is Jesus speaking to us as Christians uh, repeatedly, three times, reminding us of His return at the rapture of the church. Behold, I am coming quickly. So in 15 verses, He tells us, Behold, I am coming quickly three times. Now, even someone as dense as me can figure out this has got to be important to him as he's closing up uh, the book. He declares it first in verse 7, where he emphasizes the importance of the rapture of the church finding me, finding us, living in obedience to the instruction of the book. You say, where have we received instruction? I think the whole book is prophecy, isn't it? No, the seven letters uh, to the seven churches. So much instruction in there. Many other parts of of the revelation uh, as uh, well. Second in verses 12 and 13, uh, he uh, declares, Behold, I'm coming quickly. And he emphasizes there that he's going to reward our Christian service at that time. This is the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, the reward seat uh, of Christ. And so uh, he, he speaks of this with the, with the reminder that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, uh, the first and the last. All three of those titles for Christ have been used uh, elsewhere individually in the Revelation. But now where he closes it, this is the only time that all three are brought together. 
in order to emphasize that he's going to be absolutely faithful uh, to judge the faithfulness of the sister that we saw in the video uh, today and Christians throughout all of human history and right into this room today. You notice third in verse uh, 20, uh, uh, he declares again, Behold, I'm coming quickly. And to me, it, it, you know, the Lord warns us in our prayers not to use vain repetitions. There's nothing wrong with repetition in prayer. It just can't be empty repetition. So when he repeats himself a third time here, I almost think that he, he believes and knows it's possible for someone like me or someone like you, as we're looking at this uh, close to the book today, to hear him uh, have already said, Behold, I'm coming quickly twice, and it's made no impact upon us yet. So he says it a third time to personalize it into my own life, to realize He is coming quickly. He Himself, this very Jesus, is coming quickly uh, for us. That we're going to see Him face to face one day. It's really going to happen. And then with that, John speaks, the Apostle John, for all of us as Christians, when he responds there, uh, in verse uh, 17a and then at the end of, of verse 20, Amen, even so come, Lord Jesus. And of course, this is uh, the attitude of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit and the bride say, Come, verse 17. The Holy Spirit is eager for this day. And where the Holy Spirit is operating in His fullness, in a church... And in an individual life, there will be a longing for this day. The very mention of the coming of Jesus at the rapture of the church will produce within our hearts, uh, even so come, Lord Jesus. That kind of reality and anticipation and uh, excitement in our lives. As we've seen in our study of Revelation it is above all else. It is not a revelation supremely of end times events. Uh, it is supremely the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so it's only appropriate that we close it by partaking of the Lord's Supper this morning in remembrance of Him that is in remembrance of Jesus. Allow me to list some of the differences between the catastrophic consequences of the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis and then the description uh, of the end of the age as it's given to us in the Revelation. In Genesis, sin entered the world and in heaven there will be no more sin. In Genesis, Mankind took on a sin nature. In heaven, we will no longer uh, bear the sinful nature of Adam. We'll only bear the image of Christ. In Genesis, mankind was alienated from God. 
Adam and Eve hid from God as a result. In heaven, we're going to enjoy an intimate and uninterrupted fellowship with God. We will never know guilt again. We will never know shame again. We will never know fear again in a relationship with God. Innocence, absolute innocence, will be restored to us in our relationship with God. In Genesis, death was brought into the human condition. In heaven, there'll be no more death, only everlasting uh, life. In Genesis, tears and sorrow, crying and pain were introduced into the human condition. In heaven, we will never experience those things uh, again. In Genesis, the ground was cursed. Uh, the creation was subjected to groaning and futility in heaven. All of that is going to give way to a new heaven and to a new earth. And on and on we could go. And there is only one person in existence and only one person uh, who has ever been a part of human history who is uniquely qualified to accomplish not one of those things, but to accomplish all of those things. And that is Jesus Himself. And that's why the volume of the book from Genesis to Revelation is all about Him. He's the only one that can bring the catastrophe of Genesis chapters 1 through 3 to the happy ending that He does, not merely on the printed page, but one day in its fullness, one day in its, its reality to be a part uh, of that. And it's also why the revelation is a revelation of Him. He's the only one who could accomplish this for us. But it doesn't end there. And I'd like you to allow me to read and sometimes it's hard to listen to something that's lengthy when it's read. It's just about 17 pages. You'll be fine. It's much briefer than that. But it's worth the concentration. I want to read to you from William MacDonald's daily devotional, One Day at a Time, which I highly recommend, by the way, in this very regard. And the date, for those of you who own it, is September 3rd. He references uh, all of this from the context of Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. And he said that there Paul contrasts the two federal heads of the human race, Adam and Christ. Adam was the head of the first creation. Christ is the head of the new creation. The first was natural. The second was spiritual. Three times Paul uses the words much more to emphasize that the blessings flowing from Christ's work superabound uh, over the losses incurred by Adam's sin. He is saying that in Christ the sons of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. Believers are better off in Christ than they ever would have been in an unfallen Adam. Let us suppose for a moment that Adam hadn't sinned, that instead of eating of the forbidden fruit, he and his wife decided to obey God. What would have been the result of their lives? 
As far as we know, they would have continued to live indefinitely in the Garden of Eden. Their reward would have been long life on the earth. And this would have been true of their offspring as long as they too continued without sinning. They would have lived indefinitely in Eden. They would not have died. But in that state of innocence, they would have no prospect of ever going to heaven. There would be no promise of being indwelt and sealed by the Holy Spirit. They would never become heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. They would never have the hope of being conformed to the image of God's Son. And there would always be the terrible possibility that they might sin and forfeit the earthly blessings they enjoyed in Eden. Think by contrast of the infinitely superior position which Christ has won for us by His atoning work. We are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. We are accepted in the Beloved, complete in Christ, redeemed, reconciled, forgiven, justified, sanctified, glorified, made members of the body of Christ. We are indwelt and sealed by the Holy Spirit, and He is the earnest of our inheritance. We are eternally secure in Christ. Uh, we are children of God and sons of God, heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We are as near to God and as dear to God as His own beloved Son. And there is much, much more. But that is enough to show that believers are better off today in the Lord Jesus Christ than they would have ever been in an innocent Adam. And it is so amazing. So no Christian should ever end up in heaven one day having a beef uh, with Adam. God, Jesus, has not only overcome the consequences of the fall and overwhelmed those consequences, but He has even taken those things and He has worked them together for good in mankind's life and in our lives individually in unimaginable uh, ways. And so this morning we want to partake of communion. And we want to stop this morning and remember Him with gratitude and with thanksgiving as we partake of the symbols of His body and of His blood this morning. The symbols of as we are about to partake of, of the body and the blood of the One who has accomplished all of this for us, what we can never ever in a thousand lifetimes fully get our, our minds around, but they are ours today. One individual. One individual. Jesus Christ Himself accomplished all of that. Let's give Him thanks and praise this morning as we partake of the Lord's Supper. If the men will uh, come forward, and if the worship team will come forward, we'll serve that to you. 
You see, it'll come with bread in one part of the container and then juice in the other. We'll partake of the bread first, then the cup. Hold it and then we'll pray together and we'll partake together. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, if you would like to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins uh, right now and be born again, that can happen in an instant. And then partake of the Lord's Supper with us. If you are not a Christian and and have other questions and you'd like to talk with somebody afterwards, then don't partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. You'll want to wait until you are a Christian to partake of the symbol of His body and of His uh, blood. But please enjoy the rest of the service and our time of just giving Him our thanks and our praise.